and welcome to Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. I'm your host, Laura. Today, I have a short historical case coming to you from Colorado's favorite county, Weld County. Weld County has produced some Whopper cases over the years, including the murder of Shanann Watts and her daughters recently. And this case today takes us all the way back to 1919 in a farmhouse situated just outside an area in Weld County that used to be called Twin Bridges and on a road called Old Denver Road. And this area was located roughly between Millican and Gilcrest, where it is today, and it was near the banks of the South Platte River. Today's sources are the Greeley Tribune and a couple of old newspapers called the Republican Advocate and the Herald Democrat. Both can be viewed on the Colorado Historic Newspapers Collection website. I'll also say before I begin that there are numerous discrepancies in articles about this case from the spelling of the last name to the names of the children involved. And I have selected the names that I saw in the most articles. I imagine this farmhouse that's the setting for the case today, kind of like the farmhouse out of In Cold Blood, or maybe like Ed Gein's farmhouse, just without the belt made out of nipples inside. And essentially basically an isolated, but not too isolated little farm. Like there was a town close by, a place where things can happen to you or your family and no one will hear it. And few people will realize it for a little while. The kind of home that sits silent on a sprawling field and creaks in the wind and it's daring to tell you the horror that occurred inside of it. And here it is. On Sunday, December 21st, 1919, George Schenck drove his car to the home of his brother, Adam Schenck, who lived in the Twin Bridges farmhouse with his wife, Lizzie, and their four children, Margaret, Florence, Juanita, and Wesley, who were ages eight, five, three, and one. But when George pulled his car into the yard, he wasn't greeted by his nieces and nephew. He didn't hear laughter or chatter or the radio. He heard silence. And he walked up to the kitchen door to find the window on it broken. And he peered into the kitchen to see his brother, Adam, dead on the floor. George raced to a neighbor's home and called the Weld County Sheriff, Frank Hall. And when they arrived, they entered the home and they found the entire family had been shot to death. The children and baby included in this shooting. So they described the scene as a charnel house, which I had to look this one up. It's a house that's used to store human skeletal remains. And churches used this charnel house back in the day to store bones that they accidentally dug up while digging for more graves in the churchyard. And it can also be used to describe a house that's just filled with death and destruction. And it's often used in horror movies and horror stories. So the bodies were not skeletons, though. They were, in fact, still a little bit warm when the coroner arrived and determined that they had been murdered earlier that day between midnight and sunrise. The immediate focus was on a farmhand named Alex Miller, 38 years old, who lived in a bunkhouse just meters away from the Shank family house. And curiously, he was nowhere to be found. 
But there was evidence that he was still living there and supposed to be currently living there when the murders took place. Alex Miller was not a stranger to the local area. He was born in 1881 in Frank, Russia, and he moved to the U.S. when he was just 12 with his parents, and he had been a deaf mute since birth and was given the horrible nickname of Dummy Miller, not because he was dumb, like stupid, but because he couldn't speak. And this is a name that he was called by newspapers at the time. And he was known as to be pretty much an angry and argumentative drunk. And he often attended dance events in Evans with the intention of starting a fight. Like he would just go out and want to start a fight. He liked to go against two men at once instead of just one. Basically, I imagine him as the guy who just breaks a beer bottle on the edge of a table and tries to stab someone who bumped into him. That kind of dude. So years before the murder, he had beat a man with a wagon spoke and left the man unconscious for 12 days. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. On the day the Shank family bodies were found, Miller was somehow located in Denver visiting a girlfriend in a hotel. And he was arrested on suspicion of murder in that hotel. But papers referred to his arrest as safekeeping, fearing that a lynch mob would come for him if they transported him back to Weld County. Remember, this is still back in the days when basically lynch mobs would try to take a prisoner and do their own justice. The evidence was about what you would expect from a 1918 case. The family was killed with a 38 caliber revolver and nine shots were fired. And I'm trying to imagine exactly how you can kill somebody with a revolver, like kill an entire family without waking the rest of the family up. And I would assume he killed the parents first with one shot each. But at some point, he'd have to reload the revolver, potentially to kill the youngest children, I would assume. Um, so nine shots were fired, and a search of Miller's bunkhouse produced a 38 caliber revolver that they determined had been fired recently. And the handle of the gun was smeared with grease, and they thought that it was done to conceal fingerprints. And inside the kitchen of the Shank home, they found a can of lard with a handful of grease that had recently been scooped out of it. So a witness heading out for a hunting trip saw Miller walking along the side of the Lincoln Highway away from the Shank home early the morning of the murders. And he remembered it being odd because he rarely saw people walking on the highway like that. Additionally, a Denver Post truck driver told police that he picked up Miller in the morning of the murders and drove him to the train depot in Platteville where a woman saw him board a train with her that was bound for Denver. And I'm assuming he was one of the only other passengers on the train, and that's why she remembered him. And the ticket agent there also remembered Miller. Um, Adam Schenk and his wife were originally from Austria, and they became really successful beet and potato farmers in Weld County, and they hired Miller as a farmhand. Miller thought that he was owed a portion of the season's profits, around $1,200 to $1,300, and that's an amount that's equal to around $18,000 today. But Adam Schenk only wanted to pay Miller $50, and I can't find anywhere why he was so intent on stiffing Miller like that and not really paying him. Maybe there was some agreement that for the room and board he could stay there and work. I have no idea. Uh, maybe food was a part of it. 
But the leading theory was that Miller was so enraged over this low pay that um, he got really drunk one night and basically came in and killed the entire family thinking maybe he could somehow make a claim to the estate. And I don't know how that would have worked. One piece of evidence that was never found were the presumably bloody clothes that Miller wore to kill the family. So the family ended up being buried four days later on Christmas Eve. And curiously, they had three caskets for the six family members. Adam was buried with the youngest daughter, Juanita, in his casket. Lizzie was buried with the baby. And the two eldest girls were buried together as they were described as best friends. So many people attended the funeral. The mourners spilled out of the church and down the road. And oddly enough, the funeral took place on the anniversary of Adam Schenck's niece's murder. Her name was Rosie Gordon, and she was shot by her husband, who then turned the gun on himself. And there's not a ton about that case, so I'll just, you know, that's that's going to be all there is about that case. The trial featured a well-known defendant, um who was known for theatrics. His name was Charles C. Townsend, and he was the lawyer who defended Miller when he nearly beat that man to death with the wagon spoke. He immediately sought the task to find proof that Miller was not the killer of the family, and he loudly stated his intentions to all the news media to identify who did. And he theatrically drugged the press on, claiming that they had actually found the real murderer, And they were trying to coax him into turning himself in. And they kept going on with the charade for a while. And they never named who this person was that they found and where he was hiding out. So the prosecution brought everything, all the evidence I have discussed, plus two inmates from the jail that Miller was being kept at. um, And they wanted to testify that Miller had confessed to them what they, what Miller had done. And they dropped the bomb that one of the inmates was actually a plant from the sheriff's office to try to coax a confession out of Miller. So this police officer plant then took the stand and recounted what Miller had told him happened early that morning. So he detailed how he killed six members of the Shank family, beginning with Adam and baby Wesley. So he went for Adam and Wesley first before moving to the... Um, oldest to youngest, with wife Elizabeth dying third, then Margaret, Florence, and Juanita. Um, Women seated in the courtroom gallery wept as this police officer testified that three out of the four children were shot in the head at point-blank range, including Wesley. And I assume that means that the other child needed to be shot a couple of times, maybe not in the head, to be killed, which is horrible. Townsend asked Miller point blank if he killed Adam Shank at one point. So remember that Miller is basically, uh, he's deaf and dumb. He's mute. So he shook his head, but he was actually indicating that he clearly understood the attorney's question and he knew how to respond. But the jury, I guess, assumed that he was confessing to the murder. And this was a point of contention in the trial and that he basically tried to trick him into saying that he had committed the murder. The prosecutor then closed with this saying, If this defendant could have heard the screams and cries of the little shank children, even his hard heart would have been softened. This crime is not the act of a normal man. 
So Miller was convicted of six counts of first-degree murder, but was not sentenced to death. Um, There was some Colorado law that prevented him at the time from being sentenced to death, and he was sentenced to hard labor at Colorado State Pen in Canyon City. And in 1958, at the age of 77, Miller was eligible for parole, but none of his surviving family members agreed to take him in, which was apparently a um, condition of the parole, citing they were citing financial constraints, and he remained at the state penitentiary until his death in 1961. Curiously, he received a full funeral and a grave with his name on it, meaning that some member of his family claimed him and paid for his grave in Canyon City, but is said to not have even attended the funeral. So this mysterious person purchased the grave and claimed the body, but didn't attend the funeral. And this exact same mysterious thing occurred with another man, Theodore Edward Coney's the Denver Spider-Man, who I talked about in my very first Colored Red episode. So thanks, guys. That is the case for today. And um, I have, I'm going to try to, there's not any really good pictures for this entire case, but I'm going to try to find something and put that up on the Instagram at Colored Red Podcast. If you want to go subscribe or follow that Instagram I pretty much just do updates about cases and pictures about cases. It's a meme-free zone, I promise you that. And um, if you want to also go to patreon.com slash coloredredpodcast and donate just $1 per month, you will get a card and a sticker in the mail from me. And that's just for $1 per month. So until next time, guys, stay sane. <laughs>